You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Years ago. Uh, when I was a weird little kid, I would watch Firing Line with my dad. Firing Line was this program, uh, talk show on PBS hosted by William F. Buckley Jr., who was this right-wing douchebag, right? Hosted this political chat show on PBS. And I would watch it when I was a really little kid. And I have distinct memories of watching this show and hearing respected media figures, political figures, business leaders defend segregation, defend bans on interracial marriage – um, advocate for basically flat out period end of discussion racist shit that you can no longer go on TV and talk up and defend and expect to be employed anywhere the next morning. Um, and I've talked about this a lot when I've gone to colleges and talked about where we are in LGBT civil rights in this country and we're sort of pre that moment, right? You can still go on TV and say shitty, shitty anti-gay things, uh, advocate for just the most homophobic, transphobic bullshit and be a respected member of the community, elected to Congress, run for president the next day without anybody getting in your face about it. It is still a, a position that you can take publicly without fear of committing career suicide, right? And I would say and I have said that I remember these racists going on TV and talking this shit up, talking up segregation, talking up bans on interracial marriage, defending it. And then we seem to reach some cultural tipping point on race where you couldn't say that shit on TV anymore. You could think that shit as hard as you wanted to, but that just wasn't something you said on TV. We reached a point of – we reached this point of cultural political consensus where these were outliers. This made you David Duke, right? If you're for bans on interracial marriage, if you're for segregation, you're David fucking Duke and you are outside the realm of civil – Discourse. You're exiled. And we haven't reached that point on LGBT civil rights yet. You can still go on TV and be Rick Santorum, right? You can be Rick Santorum and head up some right-wing Christian movie studio. You can be Rick Santorum and win 11 state Republican primaries and position yourself again to run in 2016, which he is doing because these are still considered – just one side of the debate, right? The anti-gay side of the whether gay people are humans debate, right? Whether we are humans on this planet uh, and entitled to our full civil rights as humans on this planet. <sighs> Which brings me to the firing of somebody named Ike, Brendan Ike. He was briefly the CEO of Mozilla. Uh, I'm not a very tech-savvy person, so I didn't know what the fuck Mozilla was, but Mozilla is this – internet company and they create the Firefox web browser and there's something open source about it. A lot of people sort of contribute time to Mozilla. Uh, and, and this Brendan Ike guy sounds like a very important guy in the tech world. He invented JavaScript, whatever the fuck that is. I have no idea. But it's apparently very important to the laptop sitting in front of me, also known as my porn delivery system. So whatever contribution he made to making accessing porn so quick and easy and effortless, we all owe him a debt of gratitude here at the Savage Lovecast, I guess. But he's appointed to be CEO of Mozilla and then it came out that he had donated $1,000 to the Prop 8 campaign in 2008 in California, which was a vicious anti-gay campaign, right? And a successful one, demagogued against gay parents, gay families, suggested that gay people, 
marrying uh, were some sort of existential threat to children, you know, in, invoking that really the blood libel against gay people that we are coming for your children, that we're coming in your children, that we're coming to recruit them and we're coming to fuck them. That undergirds, that suggestion undergirds a lot of anti-gay violence because gay people just by existing, just by being out, we are a threat. We are attacking. We have attacked your children instead of we are some of your fucking children and some of the fucking children you have right now are gay. They're going to be gay or lesbian or bi or trans when they grow up. So maybe you want to make the world a better place for queer people because your kid could be queer. Anyway, he gave a thousand dollars to that campaign. There's a lot of queer people who work at Mozilla. It's based in Silicon Valley, a lot of liberals and progressives. They have really good policies at Mozilla around workplace protections and anti-discrimination and a lot of powerful people at Mozilla who are queer and some of them had a problem with this. And some other people outside the company had a problem with this. The straight people at OKCupid. We've had them on the show. We had one of the founders of OKCupid on the show. The straight people at OKCupid took a big stand against Mozilla's CEO. They had anybody coming to their website via Firefox redirected to a page encouraging them to dump Firefox, not use Firefox in protest of the new CEO of Mozilla. And the heat built and built and this was not the queer rights movement that was building this heat. I said not one word about this dude. Andrew Sullivan said not one word about this dude. John Erivos, really, nobody in like the like gay blogosphere was stumping for this dude to be fired. None of the gay rights organizations said boo, we're stumping for this dude to be fired. But internally at this company, there was a lot of turmoil and rancor about his appointment as CEO. And externally, again, the most prominent being OKCupid, which is not a gay rights organization and is not a company controlled by the gay mafia or me and my husband. And then, as Michelangelo Signorelli points out at Huffington Post, then in the wake of Brendan Eich running around Mozilla and assuring people that he wouldn't discriminate and then he backs all of Mozilla's anti-discrimination policies, it came out that Brendan Eich had also donated money to Pat Buchanan's 1992 run for president when Pat Buchanan was and is an unreconstructed, sorry, racist, anti-Semitic, anti-gay bigot. He gave money to him. He gave money to Ron Paul and none of this was sitting very well with the folks at Mozilla primarily where this scandal was boiling and he resigned or was fired or was asked to resign and then did resign. And this is now – all of it has been laid at the feet of the gays. We did this. We persecuted this guy, this guy who was anti-gay marriage in 2008 at a time when a lot of people were. Look at the polls. A lot of people were anti-gay marriage. As Jim Burroway points out at Box Turtle Bulletin, which is a terrific queer rights blog, does great coverage of the situation in Uganda, situation in Nigeria, Russia. You should be reading Box Turtle Bulletin. Also does great stuff on the situation here in America. There were over a million people who signed the petition to put Prop 8 on the ballot. Should they be fired? There were – 7 million people who voted for it in California and more than 100,000 people who donated money to the Prop 8 campaign. The handful of gay and lesbian, bi and trans people who were delighted when this guy got fired and did a little victory dance, we don't want all 100,000, all 
more than a million, all more than seven million people who voted for Prop 8 fired. A lot of those people have come around. The president of the United States, Barack Obama, was against gay marriage when he ran for president in 2008 in patently offensive terms. He said that when a man marries a woman, God is in the mix and that is why in 2008 – Barack Obama claimed to oppose gay marriage. How in fucking insulting is that? Who's in the mix exactly when a dude marries a dude? Chef Boyardee? Satan? Who? Nobody asked Barack Obama that follow-up question. But Barack Obama has come around. When you look at how quickly the polls on marriage equality have shifted, these aren't brand new people who've been born and raised to adulthood and are suddenly voting. These are people who've changed their minds. And we have to welcome those people who changed their mind. Brendan Eich apparently isn't one of them. Despite his apology for having caused pain, despite his assurances given to his employees and coworkers at Mozilla that he backed all of their policies, the one thing he wouldn't do, he wouldn't say was that he has changed his mind and regrets that donation. Okay. Well, as a queer person who is married, who would like to be married, who would like to see marriage equality come to all 50 states, that's unfortunate. Those bigots who can't go on TV anymore and talk about how they oppose segregation, oppose interracial marriage, that tipping point we arrived at on race, we haven't arrived there yet on marriage equality. We're still having this debate. And it didn't become illegal after we reached that tipping point on race to hold those views. You did become unemployable. You could not be the CEO of Chrysler or Mozilla or – Apple or Google or Starbucks or Kmart, if they still exist, I don't know, if you were pro-segregation, pro-bans on interracial marriage and you advocated for that, donated money to patently racist organizations, they wouldn't employ you it, because they, you, would make your, you would render yourself unemployable. And the bigots out there, they know that. So they keep their mouth shut about it if they hold those views. But they've, they're entitled to them, right? We do not – I do not want, as Queen Elizabeth I said, I do not want to make windows into men's souls. You have a right to think whatever that you want to think. But in public, we all have to work together and get together and get along. There are certain values that we as a culture ascribe to. And on race, we've reached cultural consensus. That does not mean we don't still have racists or racism, systemic racism, blah, we do. But – We've reached a certain cultural consensus. We're not there yet on LGBT. And I don't think the firing of Brendan Ike is going to help get us there any faster. We didn't do this. Sean Hannity, who called me today asking me to come on his radio show, which I declined to do because if you want me to be your punching bag, you'll have to pay me. We didn't do this. Mozilla did this. OkCupid did this. The blowback from employees, board members did this. And I don't think this has been a win for us. And I think it is crazy that this is being laid at the feet of the gay mafia. Just not true. There was no gay hit put on Brendan Eich. There was a movement underway culturally shifting, bringing LGBT shit closer to that same tipping point that race arrived at 30 years ago. And Brendan Eich maybe is the first victim of that emerging cultural consensus. But not a helpful one because if what this says to the average 30-ish percent of Americans who still oppose marriage equality is that you could lose your job if you open your mouth, that's not going to help persuade them. 
It plays into the persecution complex, the martyr complex of Christians. And we'll end here. The ultimate irony in all of this is that the folks who are screaming the loudest about what was done to Brendan Eich, fired for being anti-gay, the intolerance of the left, these are the same people who support what the Boy Scouts did here in Seattle a couple of days ago. They fired a gay scout leader because he was gay. These are the same people who talk about freedom of association being kind of a bedrock conservative principle. And if the Boy Scouts don't want gays associating with them, they shouldn't have to have them. There was a case here also in Seattle in Bellevue where a gay teacher was fired by a Catholic school for marrying his partner. The school tried to cut a deal with him so he could stay. They put it on the table. Divorce your husband and you can keep your job. And he declined to divorce his husband and was fired from his job, lost his job. And conservatives rushed to the defense of that school. They have a right. They have their values. They have a right to demand that their employees hew to those values, reflect those values. So it seems on the right – and of course the right opposes the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which would make it illegal to fire someone simply for being gay in the 36 states where it is currently still legal to fire someone for being gay. They oppose ENDA. So the regime the conservatives want and the reason they're hammering away at Brendan Eich is you can't be fired for being anti-gay. You can be fired for being gay. So please, if you're following the Brendan Eich situation or you're hearing about it, you're hearing the murmurings, please know that this is being exploited by the anti-gay right to their benefit to reinforce the ancient regime when it comes to queer people in this country, which is we are vulnerable at all times to discrimination, violence, unemployment and bigots are not. Likewise, vulnerable. But as we reach that tipping point on LGBT civil equality, as we reach that tipping point on racial equality, that's changing and that's scaring people. And when you're a tiny and vulnerable minority and we are, you don't want to be in the business of scaring people. We have to be in the business of persuading people and bringing them along and changing their minds. And this Whatever else you think and there are people out there, Andrew Sullivan is writing a lot right now about how this is a terrible thing and shouldn't have happened. Michelangelo Signorelli, John Arabosis are making the case for why this had to happen and isn't a terrible thing. Wherever you fall in that debate, we have to recognize that this has been a setback PR-wise for LGBT civil equality. And now, partly thanks no doubt to the JavaScript that Brendan Eich created – for this tech marvel that is a podcast. Now, your calls. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 29-year-old female, and I am dating a 43-year-old man in an open marriage. He's been married 21 years. His wife is a former pastor. They're in the poly closet, so none of their friends or kids that are 13 and 15 don't know that they're poly. They've been open three or four years. She's had. She's got a couple boyfriends and it, it's it's I struggle with the fact that they're in the closet because I'm such an open person, um, and I have no control over them being in the closet. And also, she doesn't want to meet me at all, which is a little odd. We've been dating for a year, my boyfriend and I, and but she, he has sort of quasi met her ex boyfriends and current boyfriends. She actually had sex with one of her exes while he was in the house, and she's arranged for them to go to like an event together where her boyfriend sits on one side, he sits on the other, and this is all fine with him. 
Um, but it's frustrating for me because she would never do that in return. And so I'm torn like that's their marriage. <laughs> Is it my business? But it's also my relationship as well. You know, do I have a right to basically demand to meet her? I've requested, I've demanded, now I've just kind of given up and stopped caring. But I'm worried that it's making me feel indifferent about the whole relationship. And maybe that's a good sign. Maybe the relationship isn't for me. I don't, I don't understand why she doesn't want to have that equality in her marriage if she would put her husband in that situation but not want to have drinks because she says she's too insecure or jealous. If that's the case, how, do, how does she function in an open marriage? Um, I understand we don't, have to have, we don't have to be best friends. We don't have to go over for drinks every night, but it just seems like an imbalanced marriage. But I guess he's obviously okay with it. And when I asked him about it, he said, I don't want to rock the boat. I'll do anything I can to make sure I keep the marriage open. So, I, you know, I'm a lot younger than her. I'm 15 years younger. I don't know if that factors into it. But it's just hard for me. The other thing is that I am single and he's obviously married. And we had a dom-sub element of our relationship for a long time where he didn't want me to date other people. Now I feel like a year later, I don't want to date anyone else. <laughs> but I'm really lonely and I don't know what the answer is because obviously he cannot be my primary in the type of marriage that he has. So just dealing with a lot of different things here the inability to kind of want to date other people, see other people now that he's more okay with it, I guess, even though he has no right not to be okay with it. Um, but he got spoiled by me. So de dealing with not meeting his wife, dealing with the whole dating other people thing. Um, and a part of me knows I just want to meet his wife to push her out of her comfort zone because I'm not even really entirely sure I would like her. So um, any feedback or thoughts you could give me would be great. Thanks, Dan. I was right there with you, kind of, sort of, until... I want to meet her to push her out of her comfort zone and I'm not sure that I would like her. It sounds like you want to meet her to get up in her face or to get under her skin and I don't know what, annoy her away, uh, drive a wedge between her and her husband or her husband and her in an effort to, I don't know, have him all to yourself if Polly isn't what you're cut out for. And part of me hopes that your boyfriend or his wife are listeners and they hear this and that they – Realize that meeting you or her meeting you would indeed be a mistake because you have an allenda that isn't necessarily positive. But let, let's back up for a second. So here you are. You're the secondary to this guy. Uh, he has a wife. He They're open. She's had boyfriends. He's met her boyfriends. She hasn't met his girlfriends and she doesn't want to meet his girlfriends. Oh, and that's tremendously unfair on its face. But let's peel that layer back and examine what's really going on. The, the relationship dynamic at work is what? Is she is uncomfortable meeting his partners, secondary partners, his girlfriends. He is not uncomfortable meeting hers. So this isn't about what's fair and it has to be identical. This is about both of them arriving at an arrangement that allows them to be in this marriage, to stay in this marriage, to be open and both of them to be comfortable so he may have agreed to a condition that she hasn't agreed to and that's not unfair because the ultimate aim isn't fairsies and whatever conditions apply to me, apply to you. The ultimate aim is how do we structure this agreement so that we are both comfortable with this open relationship? How do we structure this agreement where both of our needs, our insecurities, our primacy is taken into account and honored by each other, by our primary partners, this guy and his wife? And how that shook out is she can have her boyfriends over. She can fuck them in the house. He does not have a problem with it. She, perhaps irrationally, perhaps unfairly, is a little more insecure, doesn't want to meet his secondary partners. 
in your case might be a good idea not to meet the secondary partner. And so he doesn't ask her to and she doesn't have to. And if you can't accept that, if that's going to eat away, if that's going to gnaw at you, how unfair it is to him, to you, then this isn't the right relationship for you, primary, poly, secondary, anything. It's just not the right relationship for you, period, the end. And you don't have a right as the secondary here to say to this long-married couple, you're doing poly wrong because it's not fair. To, to the husband, the way you guys did it, you can't tell them that. They poly and open relationships and monogamous relationships, two people come to an agreement and two people come to a set of accommodations that make it possible. And those accommodations are going to be individually adjusted, tinkered, tailored so that they work for both partners. One set of accommodations don't necessarily work for both partners equally. So the accommodations on the face might seem to people outside the relationship to be unfair to one or the other. But if both partners are happy, if both partners are comfortable, if both partners feel that their needs are being met, that they're being heard, that their insecurities and everyone has insecurities are being taken into account, it's not unfair. It really isn't. If you feel it's unfair to you that you don't get to fuck your boyfriend in his house when his wife is there, that you don't get to meet her even though he's had to meet hers, then end it. Not the right poly relationship for you. Time to pull out. Hey, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old male living in Canada. I had an encounter with a girl on Saturday who I've known for a while and just started sleeping with. On Monday morning, I noticed a rash down there. I got checked out and ended up being scabies. Now, should I tell her? And if I should tell her, how should I go about doing that? So you slept with her on Saturday night and on Monday morning, you noticed this rash and you got checked out and that was the right thing to do. Props to you getting checked out. Uh, but she couldn't have given them to you. It takes four to six weeks according to my best friends at the Centers for Disease Control for scabies to manifest symptoms, for you to go from exposure to symptoms, four to six weeks. So she didn't give them to you. You, however, very likely – gave them to her in that moment. So what do you do? Do you have to tell her? Do you need to call her? Yeah, yeah, you need to call her. And she may react negatively. She may be very upset. It can be upsetting. Um, if you like her though, you know how you handle this kind of mini, low-grade, no-big-deal crisis can demonstrate to her that you're a good and decent guy. So you call her and you say, this is awkward and I apologize and I just found this out. But Monday morning I had a rash. I went to the doctor. It's scabies. I didn't get it from you. I'm not calling to say that I got them from you. My good friend Dan tells me that it takes four to six weeks for symptoms to manifest. And clearly four to six weeks ago, I somehow was exposed to scabies, which you can get most easily through skin-to-skin -skin contact but can also get it from objects. This is the toilet seats one. This and molluscum, right? These are the ones where you can literally get it by sitting on the wrong couch. So you say, and I'm calling you because you probably need to go to the doctor right now and just get checked out. And the quicker she does it, the less likely she is to get scabies all over her apartment, get these mites into her furniture and onto her clothes and into her bed sheets. And then if she flips out at you, say, I understand that you're angry. I'm really sorry. Bad timing. But I thought the right thing to do 
was call. And if she doesn't, you know, even if she's upset on the phone initially, even if she's upset when she goes to the doctor and she's mad at you for a couple of days, if she doesn't come around and recognize that you were a stand-up guy who did the right thing, even though it was awkward, even though it was going to perhaps make her angry at you for a while, if she doesn't see that and then recognize that this is a quality that she wants in someone that she fucks regularly or dates, this kind of stand-up guy shit, this kind of do-the-right-thing stuff, even when it's awkward and uncomfortable and, and even costly perhaps to you, then fuck her. You don't want to date her. You don't want to be with her if she can't see that you're one of the good guys after you make that call. We won't tell her though, unless she's a listener to this show, that you hesitated to make that call. Hi, Dan. This is a 26-year-old lesbian. I have had this friend that I've been in love with for the past three years or so. Um, she's, she's a really close friend of mine. She's also gay. The thing is that I've been keeping it a secret for that entire time because we perform together. Uh, we're performers, and so that's, that's, it's really important that we kind of keep on our game, and, and we've always had this rule with our, within our groups that, you know, interdating is just not something we should do, so I pushed off any sort of inclination that I might have had, um, and unfortunately, it just got worse and worse kind of my feelings for her. And it got to the point where sometimes when she'd get a little bit tipsy at parties, she'd get really sort of close to me and sidle up to me and, you know, in a way that was more than friendly. And I would take that too seriously, I think. And, and I felt like maybe that meant that there was something there. But I never did anything and she was in a relationship. And finally, last night, it was just too much. I sat down and wrote her this giant email where I confessed everything and basically said, I know that, you know, this isn't really an option and I know that you're in a relationship, but I need to know how I'm feeling so you understand why I'm going a little bit insane right now and, and pulling away. And I basically told her that, I mean, I really value our friendship. She's one of the best friends I've ever had, but in order for me to try and get over this, I think I need to pull away. I think I need to only see her at performances and things that we do and, and not try and complicate things. And, uh, and, and I don't know if I made the right decision. And she called me to check on me and, and, you know, apologized for leading me on in any way, which didn't feel fucking good. And, um, I don't want to lose that friendship, but is this, is this the right way to go about it? I mean, I'm still going to have to see her, but is cutting off all contact really the only solution? Because I don't know what else to do. Because being her friend obviously wasn't helping. And now I'm afraid I'm going to lose one of the best friendships I've ever had. But at the same time, it's driving me insane. I don't, is, is this the right decision? Do I need to quit everything and just start fresh? And, and I don't know if I can do that. So uh, uh, I, I just listened to your call. Yeah, that was uh, one of the more rough uh, weeks of my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I could hear it in your voice. You sounded really very, very sad, so I wanted to call you back. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for doing that. It, it had been something that had been kind of just at a boiling point for uh, a long time, and I, I, yeah, I wasn't really sure how to how to proceed or how to handle it or, or what would even happen if I did. But I ended up kind of breaking down and talking to her the next day. Uh-huh. And, and how did that go? It was awkward and kind of terrible in the sense that she's in a committed relationship, but she 
also considers me to be one of her best friends, and I think that despite all of her advances and all of sort of her talk, she she never meant to jeopardize that or lose that in any way or or even pursue anything with me, and that was kind of a harsh reality. But you felt that she you, – you used the word advances. You felt that she had made advances on you or sort of like flirty romantic friendship stuff? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Any time that we kind of let our hair down, that would begin to happen. You know, there's a lot more physical contact and flirtiness, and and I'm not completely blind. Like this wasn't something that I saw her doing with other people. So, mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't mind my probing just a little bit, you know, sure. first let me say this. You know, you say you said in your call that you didn't want to lose this friendship, and. Yeah. My answer to you would be you don't have to lose this friendship. And and taking a break, taking a time out, you know, cutting off or limiting contact. You know, you guys work together, you can't cut off all contact. Limiting contact right. for a while may be a good plan just to cauterize the wound emotionally speaking. You know what I mean? Right. To 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 give yourself to do closure, which again as we've said a million times on the show, that's something you do for yourself. You make closure happen for you, right? And if you need mm-hmm. to pull away right. and have less contact, that is something you should do, and that is a way to get the friendship back. Don't think of that as how you end the friendship. Think of that as how you get to yourself to a place where you can be friends again, right? Because mm-hmm. seeing her now may right. be too painful. You may be too raw. And in a way, up until this moment, until you made this confession, you weren't really her friend. You were, you were, hoping, you, you were hoping that you could parlay friendship to something more, you know, in your heart right. of hearts. So in a way, your friendship had a non-friendly – not a non-friendly, not an antagonistic, but your friendship had a something more than friendship agenda. Right. And, and, and so that wasn't a friendship from an honest friendship place quite for you. And I don't know where she was coming from, particularly if she was flirting with you or physical with you in ways she wasn't with other people. And maybe that was because you know she didn't realize how – toxic or explosive that was emotionally for you because she didn't feel about you the way that you felt about her and she didn't know you felt about her that way. Or if she's a malicious shit, she knew you felt about her that way and was just being a dick. And hopefully that's not the case. Yeah. I I mean, when we talked about it, she said that she didn't think that she'd been leading me on in that way. At the same time, she said that she does sort of sneak attention sometimes. So I, I don't know. I think in the end, it ended up being a combo of a little bit of both. Then take that break, take the time, and then reestablish. I, I'm curious to know, though, you know, sometimes in situations like this, that other person who's in a committed relationship, who has a friend, who's crushed out on them, will look at that friend and think, you know, if I wasn't with my partner, I could be with this person. Right. You know what I mean? And that's a, that's, a, that's a sucky place to be in. That's like being the runner-up to the Miss America pageant, right? It's kind of a suck job. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's a painful spot for you, right? And it really yeah, does – the onus is really on someone who's in a committed relationship. They have no desire to leave when they know they have a friend who's in that runner-up position because of you know, the chronology of when the friendships and relationships all came together or some other reason not to – fuel fantasies or desires that will never be realized, right? So it was really in her – it was really her responsibility to not be cuddly with you in a way she wasn't cuddly with her other friends, to not give you a little bit because she couldn't give you all, to not narcissistically want you to be wrapped up in her and focused on her. And you see that dynamic play out a lot. Somebody's got a committed relationship. They're in love. They're in this partnership. They know that this other person – 
you know, has a crush on them too and they like that attention and they like that energy and so they fuel it and that's really selfish because the longer you fuel that in someone else, the longer it's going to take that person to get to the place where you are now, which is a painful place to be and and end it or cut it off or close it off so that you can focus your romantic and sexual energies elsewhere. So you can shift away from this impossible dream, right? Right. So she has some culpability here and I hope she's apologized to you, whether it was conscious or unconscious. She toyed with you and your emotions in a way that put you in this place where you're now very, very hurt. She did apologize, but I don't, I don't think either of us really knew what to say at that point. So it just kind of ended with like a bunch of sorries and then just like awkward silence, which I don't really know what to do with any of that. Okay. Well, you know what you do? The, the, the awkwardness in any situation, what you do with awkwardness is you acknowledge it and you say, we have to perform together and we have a professional relationship. And at some point, you know, there's that friendship that, that we had that we're going to rebuild that thing. We're going to rebuild our friendship in a more honest place. Not right now, though. But professionally, we're going to work together. And here's what we do with the awkwardness. We both say, wow, this is really awkward. This is going to be awkward for a little while. And let's like acknowledge the awkwardness and set it aside. And let's interact civilly and as friends. And it, it, not as friends, not yet friends. Let's interact civilly and in a friendly way in anticipation of the friendship we will have down the road. But for right now, limited contact. Hey, look at the big awkward pink elephant in the room. Sure is awkward. Let's work together. Right. Here's part of part of the issue with it too, though, is that I think that part of this might have been fueled by the kind of like year, two years that she's had. Her father passed away in August. And I Irrelevant. was yeah, relevant. I was, now, I was I, one I, of the people. I, I don't mean to be cold, right? Yeah, I know. Don't do the girl thing here, where you look at somebody who just took a dump on you and you start making excuses for him or her, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Sad and tragic. Her father died. She needed a lot of attention and love and care and concern and compassion from her friends. In the wake of that, I understand. I started last week's show talking about my, the anniversary of my mother's death. I understand what you right. need from the people in your life at that moment, right? But you right. don't get a pass on consciously or unconsciously hurting someone because right. you're, because a parent died. I needed lots of love and attention and support and I knew that you had a crush on me, but what I really needed to do was be held. So I was allowing you to hold me because I needed that because my dad died. But I knew at that moment that you were holding me for a different reason. That's not okay. I know. It's just, it's, I, I can't help but feeling like some sort of like guilty, like attacker in a way. I don't know why. It's just, I feel like I'm the aggressor and I don't, I don't like that feeling. And I don't think that she's done anything to, to push that feeling on me or that, I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I can't help but feel that I'm just making her life worse with all of this. Well, you know what? You're both in a bad, shitty place right now because of this, right? Yeah. And she has some culpability in it. You have some culpability in it too. When you have a crush on somebody, it's a bad idea to hang out and play the friend in hopes of getting into the pants. Like that's that's something you you nip in the bud if it's an impossibility or something you throw on the table a lot sooner. Like you say to somebody who's partnered, like it's kind of hard for me to hang out with you sometimes because if you were single and I was single, I would want to date you. You say that early. 
Because if you hear early, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, you know what? If even though I was single, I really like his friend, but I wouldn't see that happening. To have heard that, I don't know how long you guys have been hanging out. To heard that a year ago or two years ago or five years ago would have been the the pain of hearing that then would have been so much less than the pain of what you've had to roll with in the last week. Right. So better to be honest. Yeah. And you you know she has a culp- she has some responsibility here. She's culpable. You have a lot of responsibility here too. It is a bad idea to wait in the wings, being the friend, hoping that you can upgrade if the partner dies or is dumped. Because you're just setting yourself up for hurt. And then sometimes when then that person thinks, oh, I thought you were my friend. That can be painful for them to hear too. Like this whole time that you were being my friend, you were really – you wanted a romantic thing? I didn't see that. But it sounds like that's not the case with you guys here. But just just a a general note for everybody else that's listening. Shitty, stupid thing to do to like – Wait in the friend zone, hoping to get into the pants zone. You're right. I probably should have said something sooner because then it would have just let this get over with already. And if you'd said it sooner, but, and I'm not, I don't think you're the the guilty party here. But again, if you'd said it sooner, this is the, the, these are the life lessons you take away from a moment like this, so you don't find yourself in this position again. And the reason people listen to shows like this is so that when they see themselves in a similar circumstance, they know what to do earlier. Right, but if you find yourself in a situation like this, you say something early next time. Right, as awkward as that can feel, you say, "Wow, if you were single, and I was single, I I love you as a friend, but I could really date you." And then see what they say. And it's much less fraught early in a relationship to say that because there's much less at stake. The longer you waited, the more you had to lose. That's horribly true. Um, but but yeah. take, but take heart. How old are you? I'm 26. We should all be so lucky as to learn this lesson by age 26. So the next time you feel this way about someone, you'll speak up sooner rather than pining, 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 hoping, hoping, hoping. And the reason people don't speak up sooner is they fear rejection. But rejection should be rushed toward. Rejection has to be embraced because if this person does not want to be with you, you need to move the fuck on to someone who does. And typically, hanging out and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting doesn't convince someone who didn't want to be with you initially to be with you later. That's rom-com stuff. That isn't life and reality usually. So to put it on the table early and stare down potential rejection, better, wiser than to kick that can down the road, down the road, down the road. And then when the rejection comes at five years instead of at five months or five weeks, it's so much more painful. And in that time, in that five years that you were pining and waiting, who knows who crossed your path that you didn't even see because your eyes were focused on this unattainable person. Right. So don't make that mistake again. And that you're still in a lot of – this has only been like a week, right? It's been a couple of weeks now. Yeah. You're allowed to have big sads for a couple of weeks. You haven't done anything wrong okay. here. But this is still like wrecking your day is not evidence that you are – a terrible person swept up in some bullshit that you're suffering an extremist or anything. This is you're having, you know, you're mourning what could have been what you had hoped for and isn't and can't be. And you're allowed to be sad for a while in a way. You know, you say to someone who's been in a relationship for a few years and it ends, you know, take a month for each year that you're in that relationship to be big and sad. <laughs> and so however long you guys have been, however long you've been hoping that something else would happen, you were kind of in this relationship with her in your imagination in your hopes. And so take a month or two to like wallow, eat, go to see movies, 
get out of the house, get some exercise, go hit on other people, like have your end of relationship sad and regard it that way. And it's legitimate. You know, we honor people who are, who have a breakup, who are having the big sad after a breakup. We like, we tend to them. We take care of them in a way, you know, we're, we're indulgent and you have turned to your other friends. And in the wake of the end of this, ask them for the same indulgence and care and you deserve it. Yeah, I guess I guess I never saw it like that. I felt like this is kind of a pathetic position to be in. So, it's always pathetic. Um, it's always pathetic to be dumped, even when it was an imaginary relationship or just a pine for uh, hope for relationship. It's still pathetic and hurtful. I don't mean pathetic in the like you're pathetic. I mean pathetic in the there's pathos and pain there, and it's real. And you have a right to acknowledge it, and you have a right to. Some TLC, whether you give that to yourself or some friends rush in and give it to you. And you know what? You're, you're in a better place, a better position to reestablish a friendship because you have something mm-hmm. else to do together besides like look at each other and talk about your friendship. Right. You have a That's talent and a, and a, that you share. You have a passion for music. You have this gig that you do together. So you guys can get together and do that and not have to look at each other, not have to talk about your relationship or your friendship or anything else. Like go and do your shows, make your music give each other a hug, and then get the fuck away from her for a while. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I am a big fan of your podcast. I am a 20-something pet owner, and this is a very weird relationship question for you in regards to the other questions that you get. But I was just wondering, I, I just tonight put on face lotion and started to pet my dog and I was letting her kiss my face a little bit and then I went to rinse my face and I thought my only concern until this point was what it what it would do like to my face. I have to put face product on again. And now I'm wondering what it does to the pup. <laughs> I I use very healthy face products. It's organic and things like that. But like normal things like parabens and everything. I know you've addressed that regarding sex toys in an earlier podcast, but I'd appreciate you addressing face products or other hygiene issues. Joining me by phone, Sherry Trusheim. She's a veterinarian and owner of Urban Animal here in Seattle. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, My pleasure. So Sherry, dogs will go to parks and dig up feces and eat it. <laughs> yes, How is this dog at risk? Dogs will eat <laughs> shit in the park and live. How is this dog at risk from licking a face with some lotion on it? And is this perhaps the most first world white person problem that you've ever heard? <laughs> I don't know if it's uh, the most I've ever heard, but I would agree. The dog is not at risk. And honestly, if you think about it, probably any toxins that are in that face lotion are more absorbed into her body through her skin than through the dog's mouth. And I'd be worried more about what the dog ate or licked prior to licking her face. So, no, I don't think there's any risk to the dog, you know, unless she's doing a chemical peel on her face. I guess. <laughs> um, so, no, I think that's probably the the least of badness that that dog puts in its mouth. So, so just to clarify, you thought she was at greater risk from something on the dog's tongue or in the dog's mouth? <laughs> well, perhaps. I mean, if it's anything like most dogs, it'll happily eat, you know, a turd, a rotting carcass. Dogs put pretty much anything in their mouth. So I think her face lotion is probably on the low end of the spectrum of harmful. Are there things around the house that people need to be worried about their dogs getting into or eating that you have cases where people are rushing their dogs into your offices for care because they ate or found or dug into X in someone's cabinet? Yeah, 
mean, there are definitely human medications that can be a problem. You know, um, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication can be an issue for for dogs. Um, grapes and raisins, believe it or not, cause really? kidney failure in dogs. So there are a lot of toxins that people don't know about, but face lotion, not one of them. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. <laughs> Sherry Trushan, a veterinarian and the owner of Urban Animal, a terrific uh Animal hospital? How do you describe it? Ter- terrific vets yeah, here in Seattle. A, I call it a veterinary practice. Yeah. Terrific veterinary practice here in Seattle. Some of the tech savvy at risk youth entrust their animals uh, to your care, and we appreciate you jumping on the phone with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 23-year-old recent college graduate living in a major city in the Midwest. My girlfriend of uh, about Almost two years is studying abroad right now. Um, I graduated in May, and she's two years younger than I am, um, and is currently studying at a program in Europe. And uh, we've been apart now for uh, just a little bit over two months, and I'm going to visit her for about three weeks at the end of April uh, to go travel around together, which I'm really excited about and really looking forward to. And it's been okay so far. We've, um, you know, we've had our hiccups here and there, but. Recently, I have felt her pulling away from me a little bit and distancing herself and not really wanting to talk about her days or what's going on. And and the program that she's in is a stressful program and is very regimented and she's in class a lot. Um, But she also, you know, nights and weekends uh, is is free. And recently, this weekend, uh, went on her first weekend trip away from uh, the city that she's uh, studying in with some friends, and uh, we got in a really big fight uh, last night via text because she thought that I was being too needy and too cleany and uh, wouldn't stop texting her. And um, obviously, I want her to have this time and I want her to be able to experience new things and enjoy where she is. But I just don't know how to to continue dealing with this. And we've had some. My issues in the past with minor, minor, I hesitate to even call them infidelities, where she's been drunk at a party and kissed someone or something like that. And I have always said how I am not okay with that, how I that upsets me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be making up something that's going on because I don't want to be that kind of controlling dickhead. Um, but I feel like I might be turning into that and maybe something is going on and... <laughs> All the while, I'm sitting by the wayside, planning this huge trip, spending thousands of dollars to try to go see here, and ending up being the, the fucking idiot at the end of the day. You're worried about being the fucking idiot at the end of the day, and I would like you to define fucking idiot. What would fucking idiot mean in this context? That you were home being faithful and stressed out and via text from a million miles away, demanding that she – Share with you all the information, all the news about her day. You say that you know it's like she doesn't want to talk about her days. And my feeling, you know, trying to reverse engineer this is that perhaps your texts aren't asking her to share her day with you, but account for her day minute by minute to you, because you have insecurities about what could happen that she might get with other guys. And you know what? The answer, the solution to all of those insecurities in this. This problem and you being the fucking idiot is to end it for now, to say while you are studying abroad, let's just go on hiatus so you can fully experience Europe, which might include experiencing a European or two and I will be free to 
do what I like and we will – I will come on this trip. We will hang out. It will be casual. We will be together. But then you know what happens when you're abroad happens when you're abroad and then we will get back together when you come back and we will pick things back up if they are picked back up a bull and, and continue. But the fucking idiot that you're worried about becoming or being is all tied to this expectation that she will be faithful and accountable to you as boyfriend and if she makes out with somebody else, gets with somebody else, then because you were home alone, pining for her and texting away to her, that you were then the fucking idiot, right? That you got hurt, that you were betrayed. You can make betrayal something that cannot happen by making an allowance for whatever is going to happen while she's abroad. You're 23 years old. She's younger than you are. You both have plenty of time to figure out if you want to be together, if you're destined to be together. And if you are destined to be together, your relationship will survive a nine-month or one-year or semester or two break. So you can alleviate yourself of all these anxieties about what she's doing out there while she's your boyfriend by not having her be your girlfriend while she's out there. So let her be free while you're in Europe and you too get to be free here at home while she is abroad. And then you will both come together again as free and autonomous and more experienced individuals who know themselves better in nine months or a year and see if you indeed have a future together. Hi, Dan. So I've been with my partner, girlfriend, about two years. I'm straight, she's bi, and we've been toying with the idea of an open relationship. But she wants to begin sleeping with a woman. Um, and she says that I can begin sleeping with men. But the problem is that I'm obviously not into me. So I'm trying to approach it with an attitude of fairness and kind of equality and that it should come down possibly to attraction. Um, so therefore we've talked about the idea of threesomes and she's open to bring a woman into our bedroom but only if we bring a man in first which again brings up um, issues of that I'm just not into guys. So... Her kind of reasoning has been that she doesn't want um, her sexuality to be taken advantage of purely for my pleasure, as she somewhat sees it. So, yeah, I'm just looking for some advice on how we kind of break this deadlock. Your girlfriend is not worried about you taking advantage of her sexuality. She is trying to take advantage of yours. She is trying to leverage yours against you. Because what she wants is the freedom to sleep with other people who happen to be women – but she doesn't want you to have that same freedom, so she's laying in front of you this impossible task. Suck some dick. Have sex with men, which you as a straight guy do not want to do. Oh, okay, well, if you don't want to have sex with men, that are, you have my permission to have sex with same-sex partners. And all I'm asking from you is permission to have sex with same-sex partners too. Such fucking hypocritical bullshit. I'm not saying that these words have ever come out of your girlfriend's mouth. Uh, but you often hear from bisexuals that they don't see gender, that they fall in love with people, not genitals. But a lot – this happens. I get this question a lot. This seems to happen a lot. This happened to someone in my family who had a bisexual partner for a while. Suddenly they see gender when they're asking for permission to be in an open relationship and they don't want their partner because of their insecurities or whatever to sleep with other women just like they're going to sleep with other women. 
They want to be the only woman. So they tell the partner that you, I'm going to sleep with other members of my same sex. And the reason they say this is because they know you're not going to do it because they don't want you to do it. So she wants to be not monogamous, but she wants you to be monogamous. And she's raking you over the coals and she's making you feel like you're somehow taking advantage of her sexuality. How? How exactly? This is bullshit. This is not the kind of structured, consented to, maybe perceived as unfairness from the outside that we talked about earlier in the show with the open relationship um, where the guy would meet her boyfriends but she wouldn't meet his girlfriends, whatever. This is I want it all and you can't have any of it but me and it is bullshit. What you say to her is you are going to sleep with other people with my consent and so am I with yours. If you can't consent to that, if we can't both have license to sleep with other people, then we're really going to have to end this relationship because what you're asking of me is colossally unfair. You are bi. You are attracted to men and women. I am straight. I am not attracted to men. So if what you want is an open relationship, that you can have. If what you want is a special right that I'm not entitled to, eh, no thank you. Speaking of bisexuality, a few months ago, late last year, Tom Daly, the British diver, uploaded a little video to YouTube in which he announced that he was in a relationship with a man who turned out to be Dustin Lance Black, uh, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Milk and a bunch of other movies now, um, and 20 years his senior, which I don't think necessarily is a problem, uh, announced he's in a relationship with D Dustin Lance Black and blah, 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 and then tossed into this YouTube video that he still fancied girls – didn't use any labels, didn't describe himself as bisexual or gay or anything else, but said in a relationship with a man, still fancied girls. And a lot of people then said, oh my god, Tom Daly just came out as gay and there's a lot of pushback, there's a lot of arguing. Um, people said he came out as bisexual uh, and how dare people – or he used no label. How dare you put a label on him? Well, after a five-month run as a bisexual uh, sort of figurehead, um, pop celebrity culture person – Claimed by the bisexual community, last night Tom Daly went on television in the UK and said that he was gay. And there were people out there, Andrew Sullivan most prominently, who said that he looked at Tom Daly and didn't see – predicted that he would never be in a relationship with a woman ever again. And he was accused of being biphobic and Andrew pointed out that for a lot of young gay men, bisexuality is a transition identity. You tell people you're bi, then you tell people after a little bit that you're gay. It's what I did. It's what Andrew did. It's what the pop star Mika did and apparently it's what Tom Daly did. Joining me now by phone, Benoit Denizé-Lewis. He is a writer at the New York Times Magazine, assistant professor at Emerson College, author of the forthcoming book Travels with Casey and the author of a large and slightly controversial cover story in the New York Times Magazine two weeks ago on bisexuality. Benoit, what was the title of the piece? Well, there were different titles. There's an <laughs> online title and a print, you know, and everyone sort of freaked out about the online title, which, of course, as a writer, you don't write. Uh, but, it, you know, the piece was essentially looking at this small group of 
um, well-funded uh, bisexual activists in Los Angeles who are um, really trying to fight uh, biphobia, bi erasure, bi invisibility uh, using science. So they're funding um, a lot of interesting, nuanced, um, you know, complicated studies about bisexuality around the country. Research into proving that bisexual identity is real and that bisexual desire patterns exist, particularly in men. Because there was a study, I think in 2005, that couldn't demonstrate a bisexual arousal pattern in males or failed to. Uh, right. And that study has been uh, redone and ta-da, uh, they did discover a bisexual arousal pattern in males once they created a better sample group to study. Uh, right. Well, they, they, they decided that, you know, in this first um, well, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, how do you find bisexual people to study? How do you find bisexuality? In the second study, they sort of made it clear that those who were going to be in the study had to have had romantic relationships of more than three months with both men and women, as opposed to just saying, oh, I've, you know, I'm bisexual. So it was a much more right. sort of specific. Um, I, I, I wrote about this in my book, American Savage, that the irony here is that they were able to document bisexual arousal patterns in males when they did something that a lot of bisexuals insist is crazy biphobic and bi erasure, which is they didn't take people's word for it when they said they were bisexual. <laughs> they, that was the problem in the first study. They went and found people who said they were bi, and there were so many bi-identified gay guys in that study, right. so many Tom Daly's in that five-month window – that it totally fucked up all the results, that they couldn't demonstrate a bisexual arousal pattern in this sample because it was overrun with bisexually identified gay men on their way out of the closet, which we're not allowed to say is a thing. So when they recreated the study and they said, you know what, we're just good. people are going to tell us that we're there by and we're going to say, no, you're not, and send them away, which is biphobic <laughs> according to the same bisexual activists you profile in this piece. And yet it is how – the science proved it. You know, we just have to acknowledge that there are some people out there who say they're bi who are lying. There are some people out there who say they're straight and are lying. And right. as you demonstrate in your piece, as you write, there are some people out there who are gay identified who are themselves lying or lesbian identified who are lying, who are actually bisexual. Nathaniel Frank, the terrific author and writer at Slate, wrote a piece about how he identifies as gay even though he is bi. Right. Yeah, I talked to uh, a handful of, of gay men, actually, who are gay identified men who talk about, you know, the difficulty of, um, you know, being among groups of gay men and trying to correct the record and saying, oh, by the way, I'm bisexual and sort of getting, you know, sort of getting, the, you know, oh, honey, we're all bisexual for a second, you know, getting <laughs> sort of dismissed. And, and this is part of what I find sort of fascinating, really, is that. So there is so a lot of as you said I, I came out as bisexual first for a second uh, many gay men do so there is sort of seen this initially there's this upside to saying you're bisexual right it maybe it helps your parents you know hold out hope that you might actually end up you know you might change your mind you might have kids in the future it's this transition identity but once that transition identity passes there's actually very little upside unless you're in a very sexualized you're on Craigslist you're looking for sex you're trying to attract gay men then you have a lot of people saying they're bisexual because it's seen as, you know, sort of more masculine. Really outside of that very sexualized space, there's very little upside to coming out as bisexual, whether you're sort of like a man living in the gay world or whether you're, uh, uh, you know, living a, uh, you know, a, you're, you're a man married to a woman, the su woman in the suburbs and you're hanging out with your friends at dinner and you're having a dinner party and everyone assumes you're straight. You're not going to sort of correct the record and say, oh, by the way, I'm bisexual. So there is this fascinating sort of invisibility that happens after that initial, you know, a lot of gay men saying I'm bisexual for a period of time. And you know why I think a lot of gay men do that? 
you know, one of the conundrums, one of the things I think is interesting I've been thinking about and actually I've come to some conclusions about whether I'm allowed to or not as a gay man, you know, why – if coming out as bi is so hard, why do so many gay men do that first? Why right. do so many – when I was great question. 15, That's I would tell question. people I was bi – because that was easier than telling them that I was gay. And then you hear from bisexual activists that it's difficult to near on impossible for adult bisexual people to come out because it's so hard to come out as bi. Okay, if it's so hard to come out as bi, why did Tom Daly come out as bi before coming out as gay? Why did I? Why did you? Why did Andrew Sullivan? Why did so many of us? And I think the reason is, you know, when I think about it, when I told my some friends that I was bi, it was because I had to tell them something. Because when I told you know, I never came out to my parents as bi, but I came out to friends as bi because there were going to be boys and there weren't going to be girls anymore, but there were going to be boys. So I had to say something. Right. And so I said bye because it was easier. And I think that the reason it becomes so much harder for people who are bi to come out later is because they lied for longer because the longer you – and I say that as somebody – I lied about my sexuality to people too for a long time, Right. It was hard for me to tell people that I had dated who were girls that I was gay or bi because I had misled them. And so the longer that went on with any individual person, the longer I let them assume something that wasn't true, that I was straight, the harder it was to tell them I was gay. And so if you're you know, 30 and bi and you're not out to your partner and you've never really had to come out to your family because there were enough girls around in your life, then coming out as bi is terrifying. Not just because of the biphobia, not just because of straight people are meanies and gay people are meanies and monosexuals are the enemy, but because you've allowed this assumption that was faulty to go on for so long for whatever reason and some terrific reasons and justifiable reasons that un- a walking it back is harder. And I had very little to walk back at 15. But if I was 30, I would have a lot to walk back. I, I think that – I think – yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a factor. I mean, but I mean, when you delve, it's really fascinating. I mean, when you ask, you know, even uh, I was at the College of Worcester last year and attended this, you know, bi pansexual panel, and um, you ask young people, even those who are, you know, very liberal and accepting, um, you know, to throw out stereotypes about bisexuals and sort of things that they've heard other people say. And the, and the words that come out are a lot sort of more negative um, than words that they would use to describe uh, gay and lesbian people. Um, you know, there's some studies that show that, you know, heterosexual uh, folks, especially men, have much harsher views towards bisexuals than gays and lesbians. So it, it is really fascinating and, and, and complicated. Um, but there is this, you know, I talked to one male student at the College of Worcester who, you know, said, you know, when he came out to his friends as bisexual, you know, all his friends were like, right, you know, you're really gay. I mean, you can tell us you're gay. It's okay. And, and he said, you know, and he's been, he's been bisexual identified for three or four years. And he said it was only after he, he literally had to like sleep with some of the women who were suggesting that he was not really bisexual to convince them that he was bisexual. <laughs> so I, you know, I think there is this, this, um, it's really complicated, and it's hard to write about bisexuality. I know you've been criticized for being biphobic. I mean, I thought I, I, you know, I tried to write a pretty nuanced piece that I actually thought was pretty pro bi. I mean, it wasn't. Wait, wait, wait! Uh, though you know, I, I went online and I see you're a monster everywhere. Everywhere I've everywhere I've gone in the like social justice Tumblr. Well, among sphere. some people, I mean, it's really interesting. Average bisexuals who aren't activists. 
I've gotten many, many emails saying, thank you for writing the piece, um, great piece. I think that the problem is, is when you are a, an activist from a, a, you know, a group um, that is, you know, bisexuals are used to being dismissed, sort of laughed at, not taken seriously. That is just a, 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 a that's just sort of a truth of their experience. And I think that, you know, part of the difficulty of writing about a group you know, bisexuals. There are a lot of different kind of bisexuals. There's a lot of ways ways that one could write that story. You know, when you write a cover story for the New York Times Magazine, people get frustrated if they don't see their experience, their particular experience, reflected in this major piece about a topic. Um, but for you know, but for as a writer, you have to sort of take a particular angle. So I focused on the American Institute of Bisexuality, and there are other bisexual activists who fundamentally disagree with the kinds of work that that AIB is doing. I, I- I have to say that what I thought was most interesting about the reactions I read, you went and wrote about the American Institute of Bisexuality, which is funding all this research into proving scientifically that bisexual arousal patterns exist, that bi people exist. And the blowback was like, how dare he? How dare he focus on this? You know, we exist. We shouldn't have to prove it. How dare uh, Benoit, Dennis A. Lewis write about this? Um, as if this scientific quest to prove that bisexuality exists was your idea. Well, yes. Well, obviously. As opposed I mean, yeah, to it's so, being so, funded by bisexual organizations and activists with their own right. agenda. And you wrote about them, but the anger was directed at you as a gay dude for having the nerve to write about what these bisexual activists were doing. Well, listen, Dan, you can't, I mean, you can't, I mean, I've written cover stories for New York Times Magazine about gender and sexuality for the last 13 years, and I don't think I've ever written one that, that – people weren't angry. I mean, there's always going to be, I, I don't take much stock in it, but part of the problem <laughs> with, the, with the, an online piece is, is sort of a headline that doesn't actually reflect. I mean, AIB, the American Institute of Bisexuality, has mostly gotten past this idea of proving that bisexuality exists. Yes, they funded this study at Northwestern, and, and, but they're really sort of looking at, they're, they're sort of moved beyond that, and they're looking at sort of, what are the diversity of experiences among bisexual people? Like, how do we, what do, can, can we study these Kinsey fours and fives? Can we study these mostly straight dudes? Can we look at arousal among, you know, self-identified gay men? How many of them, you know, are, are attracted to women? What, you know, what is there, what are the differences in, in aversion, you know, with, with gay men? I mean, there, there's this fascinating study in Northwestern, I mean, fascinating to some, where they're looking at sort of the difference in gay men between those who are, you know, gay men can sort of be divided into two groups. Those, if, if you bring up female sexuality at dinner, will ask you to be quiet. And, and then those who, you know, maybe said, oh, I slept with women in college. I, I'm not averse to female sexuality. So Lisa Diamond, the researcher who's done a lot of really interesting stuff on, on female fluidity, is looking now now at male fluidity and sort of asking the question, you know, we've long had this assumption that women were much more sexually fluid than men. And she's really looking at, well, is that necessarily true? Um, so there's a lot of different areas that they're focusing on now that I think are pretty nuanced and complicated and interesting. I agree. And I agree. It's interesting. Years ago at Savage Love, 15 years ago at least, I wrote about the return of trade, that if you went on Craigslist, you could see yeah. all these straight guys sort of coming back to if I'm getting my dick sucked and closing my eyes and thinking about Angelina Jolie, I'm not the faggot, right? Which is, how, which is a lot of how heterosexuality used to function. We're seeing a lot more heteroflexibility. Right? Yeah. But, it, but you yeah. get into this argument about identity, right? There are people who have told me that I should have to identify – I should not have to. I should identify as bi because I have had sex with women and I have every once in a while said, you know, I saw this lesbian firefighter and cruised her by accident. <laughs> 
because I didn't realize. But like, part right. of like, I wonder if I could do that. Like, oh, you must then you're by. And I think we should have a new, more nuanced com- conversation about sexual identity because it's a layer. It's a three layer cake. I always call it. The bottom layer is what you want to do. Mm-hmm. The next layer is what you are doing, and the top layer is what you tell people, how yep. you identify. Yep. And there's some rounding up in that identity process that if you are – if you're like me, I really think that even if I'm rounding up by 2 percent at the top to gay as opposed to bi, that that's that – it reflects the honesty and truth of my lived experience. I live as a gay right. man. I don't live as a bi guy, right? And there's a lot yeah. of guys out there who – have sex with their wives who love eating pussy, who are dogs and into women and mess around with dudes every once in a while who round themselves up to straight because it's how they live in the world. Are they monsters? Is that in error? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I, I certainly, you know, share your, uh, yeah, I, I went and did a couple of, I went through a couple of the tests myself, one at Northwestern and one at Cornell, and I got different results. You know, at, the, at Northwestern, they said, you know, they attached something to my penis and showed me pornography and, um, and my, my, my results were, <laughs> and, I, and I, initially I went in there and I said, I said, you know, you can't just show a gay man any kind of, Gay porn. gay porn and expect that that that's going to be aroused. And they and they they have to their credit they've thought they've thought of that. But they, you know, they did actually show porn that was actually pretty compelling. So I was surprised. I actually did. I, <laughs> wait, I wait, was surprised. wait, wait, <laughs> not not objectively compelling. They showed you porn that worked on your deck. <laughs> they should. They showed yes, and they, and they they're actually smart. They picked porn that they figured out that a that a majority of gay men will like. So in any event, so they showed me that and, and my arousal was, was gay. Although interestingly, I did not lose my arousal when a woman um, came in the scene and they were sort of looking at a version and some gay men do lose their arousal. But, you know, these tests are so complicated because, you know, how do you take into account, you know, the fact that some gay guys are really into straight guys. So, you know, the fact that there's a woman in the scene doesn't necessarily mean that I'm attracted to the woman. It could mean that I'm really just turned on by the idea of these two guys being with this woman. And, the, and, the, and those guys are that much more attractive by dint of the woman's presence because what I'm into <laughs> are straight guys. Right. And so it's, it's complicated. But then I went to Cornell and I, they did an eye, a pupil dilation study, which, um, you know, is, is different, but has been shown to sort of to match what you identify as. And, and I, um, and I was really surprised to learn that I, my eyes said that I was more bisexual than gay. So, you know, I had this moment in the story where I'm sort of thinking about, you know, could that be true? Could I sort of have my sexual orientation all wrong? And, um, you know, I, I certainly don't think, I don't identify as bisexual. I'm much more attracted um, to, to men. But, you know, if I'm a Kinsey Five, on you know, if I'm a Kinsey five, which I think I am. Um, but do we wait? You know, do we want a definition of gay out there that says that you're only gay if women's bodies and women's genitalia make you throw up? I think that's a <laughs> no. Really, I don't think we want that. I think that's a really negative ident- idea. But I said that yeah. to my very first boyfriend when he was all like, "Women ick, women ick." I was like, "I'm gay because I love dick. I'm not gay because I hate women." Right. And so I don't want I don't I don't want to float that out there necessarily. That if you know you hook some gay dude up to the pupil measuring device and they right. show him pussy and he doesn't faint or throw up or have a heart attack or lose his erection that he's not legitimately a gay dude we want gay dudes in the world who aren't revolted by women's bodies right. or genitals or sexualities right? right well well i mean yes and and here's the problem with with these these boxes and these 
categories. Uh, you know, I mean, what, what do you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of space in between and that, you know, to their credit, AIB is really interested in sort of delving into that space in between. And, you know, I talked to a lot of, um, men who were like, they were really confused. They're like, well, maybe I'm bisexual, but I feel like I'm like 90 or 80% into one and 20% in the other. Like, should I identify as bi in that case? Like, what's the percentage threshold that should make one identify? This comes, up in my col- this comes up in my column all the time. I am constantly yeah. talking to guys who I tell them that they're bi, but they don't believe they're bi because they're not ro- – they're only sexually attracted to men, not romantically attracted to men. They're right. only 20 percent attracted. You know, They're primarily attracted to one, not the other, romantically attracted to only one, not the other, when right. a lot of what sloshes around out there in sort of – by writing, by activism land at those conferences with college kids is that a bisexual person doesn't see genitalia, doesn't see gender, can fall in love with anybody. And the lived experience of a lot of the bi guys I hear from at Savage Love and on the Savage Love cast is they can't fall in love with men. They love having sex with men, but they fall in love, romantic love, intimate love, partner bond love only with women. And they don't think they're bi because of what they've heard from bisexuals about how bi works. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of it might be that. It, there also might be sort of a cultural pressure, obviously, to to choose to identify as heterosexual. I mean, I think that certainly plays a role. Um, it's, but, it's but, but remember, I'm talking to people who read my column. Okay. I'm not talking to a random sample. I'm talking to people who are right. pretty sexually progressive just by dint of their reading my column. Yeah. And they've fallen for it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, a, that's a I, problem. When in you know there needs to be a smarter dialogue, I think, coming out of the bisexual activist community and the bisexual community generally about what bi means, because there's a lot of people who feel they're disqualified from bi, even though they're having sex with men and women. Right, right, yeah, and I think that that you know just like any other group, bisexuals, there's a lot of different kind of folks with a lot of different kind of agendas. And I hear, you know, a, a good friend of mine who I quote in the piece says, you know, it's extraordinary to be bi and to, and to, and he, he can be, he's like, yeah, I don't see, I don't see genitalia, man. He's like, I'm just, I'm into the, I'm into the person and with him. He's a good friend of mine and I know him well and I believe him that that's irrelevant. I think for other bisexual identified people, that's not the case. The, the, you know, the, the, genitalia is important. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, complicated, and really uh, an area that seems to get a lot of people very heated in terms of, in terms of talking about it and understanding. And it's, it's hard to write about, a, you know, all of these issues. I tried to actually touch on a lot of what we talked on talked about today in my piece. It's a great piece um, and everyone should go read it at the New York Times magazine. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It really <laughs> is terrific. Now, but quickly before I let you go, let's unpack yeah. how problematic our conversation is. Can you guess? Let's unpack it. <laughs> yeah. Are, are this conversation is really problematic. Two gay men talking about bisexuality. I don't think that's allowed anymore. And we haven't talked much about women. Um, and I think that... that wait, uh, wait, wait, that- wait. Women can be bi? <laughs> So, yes, it's problematic. We haven't talked much about women. We're two gay guys talking about this. But I've got a little bit of that criticism, you know, why is a gay person writing about this? But I don't take much stock in that. I mean, different kinds of people can write about different kinds of communities. I mean, I do that all the time. And, part um, of, and a lot of what you hear from uh, bisexual activists is they wish that gay people would come to a better, fuller, more nuanced understanding about bisexuality, about issues that are confronting bisexuals. Uh, and what better way to demonstrate that than a long piece written by a gay man who is himself coming to a deeper and more nuanced understanding about bisexuality? Yes, and I think that one quickly one other thing that that bisexual activists would like to see more 
attention on, and I understand this, is, you know, there's a lot of studies that look at health disparities from those who identify as bisexual. Um, they, they tend to not be doing well sort of physically, psychologically, as gay men are, uh, or, or straight people, but that's a hugely problematic, and co- those, those studies are, are, are complicated, and they are, and, and, and there's a lot of folks, and a lot of folks who told me, you know, they're only getting a certain type of bisexual person in those studies. Can we, and, and if you write a piece about, because many bisexual people I talk to are doing great, if you write a piece that's really focusing on how horrible the lives are of bisexual people, then you're going to get attacked, or I would have gotten attacked for doing that. For pathologizing so, bisexual yes. people. But, uh, you know, I would throw out there that if I was 49 years old, which I am, and closeted, I would be miserable. And 72% of bisexual people are closeted. So there may be some connection there between bisexual misery and bisexual closetedness, which is not to excuse gay people or straight people or the culture for its contributions to keeping bisexual people closeted. I watched this terrific film um, that I'll put a link up to uh, on the blog. Uh, made in Canada, interviewing people who'd come out as bi, who were who kept sit- sitting there saying, "I'm so much happier now, right? That people know who I really am. I'm so much more at peace." And so, right. if we want to have better health and uh, psychological outcomes for bi people, we should be doing everything we can to make the world a better place for bi people to come out into. But bi people need to come out. Yeah. Hey, well, but two things: bi people need to come out, and then when they do need to come out. We need to not, I mean, and I have to check myself too, because I've known so many young, especially men, young men who've said that they're bisexual, and I look at them and I like, you're not going to be bisexual in a year, and I turn out to be right. But it's not always the case. There are, and I talk to them for the story, there are people who come out as bisexual who are legitimately bisexual. They stay bisexual, um, and it can be, I think, as, a, as gay men, we can be very dismissive of that. Uh, just, it's just a knee-jerk reaction, and I think that... So do you think um, Andrew Sullivan was wrong to say that about Tom Daly when he came well, out? Well, he, he turned out to, he, no, he turned out to be right, and I think in most... Well, no, 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 that's not whether he was right to... What, you know, what Andrew Sullivan said after Tom Daly said that I'm in a relationship with a man, but I still fancy right. girls, is that he would never be in a sexual relationship with a woman ever again if he ever had yeah. been, and basically said he's gay, he's gay. Yeah, and yeah. Andrew I mean, was, I think, wait, wait, let me finish. Andrew was yeah, right... Yeah. In the, yep. in the final sort of accounting, he was right. Tom Daly is yep. gay. But was yep. it wrong, Andrew, to say it anyway because of the impact it might have had on people who were coming out as bi at Tom Daly's age who are bi? I, again, I'm not going to say whether it was wrong or right. I'd say I, I, would, I, would, uh, I would be hesitant to do that, especially after talking to so many bisexual people who are who who so – who are so fed up with being like dismissed. And so I probably wouldn't say that um, anymore. Uh, I used to, I used to be very dismissive um, but, but you when I was younger. It. <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between is thinking it, it and saying it, it. And I, and I wouldn't think it in the same way that I used to, Dan. So. <laughs> so we will leave you with your thought crimes. Benoit Denise Lewis, he's a writer at the New York Times Magazine, assistant professor at Emerson College, author of the forthcoming book, Travels to Casey, and he wrote the terrific New York Times Magazine cover piece a week and a half ago, uh, The Scientific Quest to Prove Once and for All That Someone, Even a Man, Can Truly Be Attracted to Both a Man and a Woman. Bisexuality Comes Out of the Closet. If you haven't read it, get online and read it. It's great. Thank Thank you for jumping on the phone with us today, Benoit. Thanks, Dan. See ya. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old female from Texas. Howard, this question is not for me. It's for my mother. Or I'm calling to try to help her. She is married to my father, and they've been married for over 25 years. They're best friends. They love each other so much. 
But within the last couple of years, my mother has revealed to me um, that my father has a severe erectile dysfunction problem. And unfortunately, she followed up with the fact that she is a sexual person and would like to have sex. And she has mentioned that this has been a huge, huge obstacle for them throughout their entire marriage. And if she would have known this before she married him, she probably wouldn't have married him. Okay, so my question to you, my mom I know has said that she, that he has been using Viagra. I hate that I know this, but I want to help her so bad. And it's helped in the past, but now it seems to be a complete just no-go. They do not have sex whatsoever, and it is hurting their relationship a lot. I would love to propose the idea of an open relationship. However, I don't know how to set up the framework or even mention it. I don't know how to mention it to her. So is there, what do you think if I want to maybe just expose the idea of possibly my mother being sexually satisfied elsewhere, but still continuing her relationship with her best friend in marriage? I don't know what you think. Am I even crazy for wanting to ask to, to present this to her? I know she's really closed off to the idea uh, when I've mentioned it about myself being in an open relationship. She thinks it's icky, and I would like to open her back up on it. Tell me what you think. You need to butt the fuck out of your parents' sex life. I know. I know. I know it's crazy for me to even want to And I'm not, I'm not blaming you because your mom invited you in with these complaints about your daddy's soft dick, Right. Right. And that the Viagra doesn't work anymore. When she shared her frustrations with you, naturally that brings out in you this desire to fix it, to help. I know. But you really can't fix it or help because especially when you, at the end of the call you mentioned that you talked about open relationships as a possibility for you and your mother freaked out. And I know. Cause she's a, she's a, a Catholic conservative. But, well, she's very liberal when it comes to politics and – everything, but she is, you know, she comes from a Catholic background, but she married an American precisely because she's more progressive. Mm -hmm. So I just, I feel like if I were to just somehow nudge the idea her way, that maybe just by planting the seed, okay, she so would you, be wait, able to. Let's game this out. You nudge the idea her way of an open relationship. She, bring, she brings that to your, to her, your father, Let's say you give her a book. Tristan Tarmina's opening up. You give her that book. She brings it to dad. Mentions that this was your idea when dad freaks out. Like, shifts the blame. Or let's say she finds a lover. Let's say she goes on AshleyMadison.com and then it all comes out that she's cheating and it all explodes. You want to be responsible for lighting all those fuses potentially? Oh, you God, want no. All that no, blowback no, no. coming your way? Oh, I didn't think about it that way. You say to her, Mom, I'm really sorry that you and Dad have this difficulty. You know, friends I know who've had this difficulty either opted for open relationships or wound up cheating. But you know what? It makes me uncomfortable to talk with you about this. Please, you, you need to find some peers, some girlfriends that you can talk to about this. I know. Because talking about no, right. involving me in yours and Dad's sex life is really making me uncomfortable. I want to love you. I want to support you. I'm sorry this is frustrating for you. Find some nice ladies to talk to about it. Okay. And then leave it alone. You don't want to be standing there with cum on your hands or blood on your hands, pardon me, if this goes south in a spectacular way. Right. Okay. So so here I should really do two things. I should say, you know what? 
you know, and I would say this to her in Spanish, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Try to find other outlets or other people that you can talk to about it. Um, and also kind of mention, because she does, she's way too old. She doesn't have a filter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, and it happened ever since I became a, an adult that she just tells me about everything, you know, or if I go into a room and I'm staying for the weekend and I make, I'm making her bed, like I'll see her KY jelly next to a picture of Jesus. And I'm, you know, and she's, <laughs> Oh my God. God. And I'm like, Madre mia, like there's a, there's a, a contradiction here. Isn't there? And she goes, no, no, no. Jesus would love for me to have a good head sex life, you know, or something. And, and I agree with your mother on that point. Here's how you flip the script. When you mentioned the potential of having open relationships, she was like, ah, right. For myself. Yes. So you say to her, you say to her, mom, you don't want to hear the details of my sex life. You're right. And, no, it's and true. It, because it's it makes you uncomfortable thing. and it's awkward. And you know what? You don't, I don't want to hear the details of yours. That's for friends. I, I confide in my friends. Find some friends to confide in. I'm your daughter. And, you know, hearing about dad's dick makes me uncomfortable. It does. But I think that she's too embarrassed to talk to her friends about it. I don't know why she t- told me. I think it's because they were, they were going through, they've been going through rough patches, I guess, when my dad just doesn't want to do anything with her or I mean, cause they've gone to the doctor and apparently nothing helps. Um, and her demands and just, just rub his nose in his inadequacy and his failure as a sexual exactly. being. And he would yeah, probably, he either just probably wants to have the issue not raised anymore. And he may be content in a sexless marriage. She is not going to be a content in a sexless marriage. That's a conversation that they need to have with each other about how to, how to live together like that. Whether that means mom is relegated to masturbation for the rest of her life with dad's cheery, sort of consent or they do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane. And they have a don't ask, don't tell agreement about whatever, but none of that involves you. That's your parents thing. And you need to just, you need better boundaries with mom, 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 stop talking to me about dad's dick. I know. The only thing I need to know about dad's dick is that he came once and here I am. That's it. That's the only news I need about dad's dick. And I already got that. Right, right. So, so if for some reason she starts talking about them potentially like getting a divorce or this and that, then I would be like, oh, okay, but go try and see if there's other options or. There's, a, you there's know, an article. It's there's an article. There's a lot being written out there right now about sexless marriages, companionate marriages. There's a big article at CNN that I cite in my book about you know approaches to saving the sexless marriage, includes, including ethical non-monogamy which they list in the CNN article as something that might save your sexist marriage after divorce. There's a long list of ways to save a sexist marriage and divorce comes before non-monogamy. That tells you a lot about how the culture regards non-monogamy. That regards okay. divorce is likelier to be a better solution to save a marriage than fucking other people and staying together. You can throw all this at your mother, but if she has no filters with you, she probably has no filters with dad. You know, you're right. And so she what, can't keep, yeah. And whatever you say to her, whatever advice you give her is going to very likely come out of her mouth to your father as what you've told her to do. Mm-hmm. Do you really want dad yeah. to come to you and say, so you're telling mom to cheat on me because I can't get an erection? Oh my God. <laughs> but the fuck, but, but the fuck out, cut yourself out of it. Oh, rehearse, in, rehearse in Spanish. Mom, you need some girlfriends to confide in about your sex life. I'm your daughter. <laughs> Yeah, it's right? just that we live in such a we live in such a such a conservative area, and like we're like always in the closet as a family politically, you know, in a liberal way, 
and I know it's the same thing. Get online and find some online support groups for wives of men with ED. Find some sexually progressive support groups. Go to the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which is a progressive uh, sex ed, sex researcher, sex counselor org where you can find in your area someone who isn't going to blanch at the suggestion of openness perhaps as a solution. Okay. Tell your mom to go get a counselor. Got it. Writing that down. Okay. A-A-S-E-C-T.org. Perfect. I will Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Particularly important with someone who has no filters. She just really needed to open up about my dad not being able to satisfy her sexually. And so I've just been really struggling. And, And this is what happened. On Saturday, she said, I don't. These were her words. I do not want to be in a marriage with my best friend. You know what I would say to to, to mom? She's mm-hmm. been with she's been with, and I would risk saying this to her: filters or no filters, most marriages wind up there, and okay. that's a good thing. You know, if there's a lot of sexual passion and heat at the beginning, most marriages of multi decades, the one of the perks, something that you can hope for, is that you wind up in a marriage with your with your best friend, that you're good together, that you love each other. Because sex tends to taper off in the end regardless. And so if you had a great sexual connection and you married an asshole that you can't stand, then in the end you're married to an asshole you can't stand who doesn't fuck you anymore. She's married to someone she loves who doesn't fuck her anymore. That's a pretty good outcome multi-decade marriage-wise. Okay. And so if she needs some fucking around the edges so that she can stay married and stay sane, fine. If she needs to divorce him because of it, that might be better than her torturing him for the rest of his life and torturing you. <laughs> oh, God. I guess you're right there, too. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Everything you said made sense. And you really put it in perspective. If my dad comes back to me and says, you know, Mom I can't says you gave you're... him this book. Mom says you yeah. gave her this book. Oh, my God. What a convo that would be. Oh, that was that would, that would be a huge shit show. No, you're right. I can't have that. Like, not even close to that. Okay. Okay. No, you're right. Thank you. I, you are spot on as always. <laughs> you're welcome. Good luck. Thank you so much. <laughs> Love your show. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, a quick programming note, in a couple of weeks, the current season of the Savage Lovecast ends for Magnum subscribers, uh, and Magnum subscribers will have to re-up. For those of you who haven't given the Magnum Savage Lovecast a try, now might be a really good time to dive in because we're changing the way season subscriptions work, really getting rid of seasons. We're creating a new thing that we call the all access pass. And here's how it works. Um, Starting on April 22nd, we're switching from seasons with set dates to this all access pass things. That means when you buy the subscription to the Savage Lovecast Magnum edition, you get access to every Magnum Savage Lovecast we've ever recorded for as long as your subscription lasts. So you can listen to all the old shows and all the new shows as they come out. One year of the new Access Pass costs 36 bucks. Six months, 20 bucks, as it's always been. And you can get a one-month all-access pass where you can gorge yourself on Savage Lovecast Magnum Editions for just five bucks if you want to try it out. Again, we'll be rolling that all out on April 22nd. So think about it, Savage Lovecast micro listeners and uh, Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. There's going to be a lot more to your Magnum subscription going forward than there was in the past. We appreciate everyone who subscribed. We appreciate everyone who listens, subscribe or not subscribe. Uh, and we're making the subscriptions better for those of you who do. So if you do, thank you. And new and more coming your way. If you haven't yet, 
Think about it and you can give it a try for just five bucks. Hi, this is a call for the girl who found her panties under her dad's bed. I agreed with everything that you said, Dan. And also another thing for her to think about too is just how easily it is to mix up laundry when you live with somebody. You know, there's a chance that he just thought it was one of his pairs of panties that he already had. He might not even realize that they're yours. So I would assume that just for your own peace of mind, that he just grabbed them because he saw them on the floor and he thought they had fallen out of or somehow gotten out of his underbed. Good luck. Hey, Dan and Tech Savvy at Miss Youth. Um, I'm calling in response to the woman who called her boyfriend's sort of finicky erections um, in group settings and with new partners. I had actually, well, I didn't, but my um, male body partner had this a similar issue. And um, I, for one of his birthdays or for Christmas or something, bought him a spare parts harness with a dildo. And it's great. He can wear it. And also, like, he can tuck his cock in it. Or if his cock gets hard, it can, like, sort of come out the other holes. And then he has, like, double penetration possibilities. But it was such a relief, I think, for him, even more than I ever anticipated, because he was like, ah, I can fuck everyone, everyone, I can fuck everyone, you know, because he's like, I don't have to worry at all about getting hard. Like, I can fuck you with a cock no matter what. And I think that just did, like, a ton. And generally, like, especially if you're queer and you go to a a group sex situation and a guy is like wearing a harness with a dildo, people are like, really, that's like cool. Like they think it's interesting and fun. They are like, he is more popular. (laughs) So anyway, that's an idea if if you want to go the um, DIY route. Hey, Dan. Um, I was just listening to podcast. 388 on the Magnum version and the question about uh, parenting and coming out as a poly family to your kids. Um, And I'm a now 29-year-old kid who was raised for several years by poly triad. And the main thing that I wish I'd been given by my parents um, and their wonderful third was words to describe her um, because I ended up choosing to refer to her as sort of like my aunt Um, And that meant that when my parents eventually divorced and my father remained with their third, all my friends were going, wait, he left here mom for her sister, which was not at all the case. I did do really well with the extra attention, the extra parenting um, that that was able to provide. But maybe make sure that your friends know, you know, this is our friend, Susie, who hangs out with us and is living in our house or comes to visit on weekends. Um, Just give them words to talk about it, and that might help them with their friends at school. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. And Hump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival, my amateur porn festival, is coming to Long Beach, California at the At Art Theater on April 12th. Go to humptour.com to score tickets. The Hump Tour is also coming to Dallas to the Texas Theater on April 19th. Once again, humptour.com for tickets and info about Hump. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. 
Follow Benoit Denise Lewis on Twitter at B-E-N-O-I-T-D-L-E-W-I-S. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue. We will all be back after next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.